0: Hello again, friends, and welcome to Madison BookBeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your host, Stu Levitan. We're going to deviate a bit from that concept today with our guest, Lisa S. Johnson, because she's got a new book out that I thought you might want to know about for your holiday gift-giving or gift-asking needs. The book is Immortal Axes, Guitars That Rock. It is an absolutely gorgeous coffee table photography book, focusing on some of the most important guitars in modern music. Guitars played on recordings and at historic events and even some concerts in Madison. By the likes of Les Paul, Jimi Hendrix, Jimmy Page, Dwayne Allman, B.B. King, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, Phil Lesh, Johnny Cash, and more. 157 guitarists in all, 350 pages of high-end photographs and insightful short essays, plus a foreword by Peter Frampton and an afterword by Susie Quattro. The book is published by The Good People at Princeton Architectural Press. Lisa S. Johnson followed a somewhat circuitous route to becoming one of the preeminent photographers in a very rarefied field. She traveled solo around Europe and South Africa for seven months as she was turning 21, went back home to Canada and got a hotel job in the icy and isolated Northwest Territories then two years at an exclusive private club in Edmonton before transferring to Florida, where she put herself through college studying photography. Naturally, she ended up with a job at a private photo lab with the necessary security clearance to handle material for NASA and various defense contractors. Then a decade with with Eastman Kodak Company before the corporate world started to get her down. After injuring her neck, she took up Kundalini Yoga and took to it so well, she quit her job at Kodak and opened up two yoga studios in Las Vegas, where she continues to live. All the while, though, she was continuing with her photographic pursuits, but now, thanks indirectly to her father's interest in a 1917 Gibson mandolin, with a new focus, guitars. The lure of the modern lyre was so great, she sold her studios to concentrate on a guitar project, and in 2013, published her first book, 108 Rockstar Guitars, the number itself a nod to various spiritual aspects of yoga. The new book expands the area of interest to include guitars notable for their custodians' contributions to country, jazz, and blues. Lisa S. Johnson's website is immortalaxes.com. Her Twitter handle is lsjrockphotos. It is a pleasure to welcome to Madison Bookbeat Lisa S. Johnson.
1: Wow, I am so impressed, Stu, with your research on my background. Um, you're a, a first to have con- put it all together so beautifully and concisely. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction, especially when my daddy's sitting right here too and can hear all that. <laughs> yeah, so that's really absolutely. wonderful. <laughs> that's really wonderful. So thank you.
0: People should know who it is they're they're listening to. So so thank you, and say hi to your your dad for me, and we'll talk about his. His role in in your career development in a little bit, but we were talking before we uh, started taping about our mutual friend Jim Bestman. Yeah, a lot of people in Madison remember Jim very fondly. How, how did you know Jim?
1: I met Jim because uh, I actually was in Nashville on a trip with my girlfriend Virginia Lowell, who owns Starfile Photo Agency in New York, and she represented Mick Rock, Bob Gruen, all the rock and roll photographers, and she was my client and so she she and i both knew Rayanne rubenstein who was a photographer who passed away i guess two years ago now and she photographed all the country greats and rock and roll people too and anyway i went on a trip with virginia to nashville to hang out with Rayanne. we all three girls went out to dinner and there was jim bestman sitting in the same restaurant eating by himself so Rayanne, we all went over there and Rayanne introduced me to jim bestman and we became friends and he liked my project. I was had, was kind of just starting my project at that time. And he said, I can probably help you out with a few people. And so he ended up helping me to get um, the Rolling Stones, Keith Richards and, and Ronnie Wood, because he was good friends with their publicist. And so he introduced me to his publicist, who in turn helped me to get to the Stones. And also to ZZ Top was also, that was key. Um, Uh, so Jim got me the stones and ZZ Top and he always would help me along the way. And so we always hung out every time I went to New York city, we always hung out, me and Jim and a wealth of information of such a mensch, you know, he really was helpful to so many people. He, I mean, he helped me launch my career. I mean, Jim Bessman, I got the rolling stones. With Jim Bestman. and that obviously really helped my career. And at the same, publicist uh, also was working with the Hendrix experience, so that was very helpful. He helped me with the getting the Hendrix guitars too, the White Woodstock Strat. So yeah, Jim was key uh, in my career, and he was a wonderful friend. And I will always miss Jim. And I send him my love to heaven.
0: He, he was a sweet, sweet man, and and we miss him dearly.
1: Yeah, we sure do. I'm so happy to know you, Stu, and to to know someone that knows knows Jim.
0: Thanks. Now then, to the book. What is it about guitars that even a photograph of them can carry such emotional impact?
1: Well, the guitar of course, is the wire and wood that holds the mystery and holds the song of the music that the artist created on it. And when the artist is creating on the guitar, they're also putting their soul into it and their heart. And not only that, but their personality becomes infused in that guitar with their sweat, with the, the way that they work their hands on the fingerboard, the, what's left behind from the way they pick and strum. Uh, from wearing jewelry or putting stickers on it. So the photograph really tells the story of the artist even without them being in the photograph because of what they leave behind on it and how you can look at that guitar to see how they strike the strings, what pick, uh, what marks are left on the pick guard. what what sweat? Where's the sweat marks? Where's the wear? How do they like? Ted Nugent's guitars are so interesting to look at because he sweats a lot and he turns the tone and volume knobs and then brings his thumb right back up to the strings and it's etched like a deep etching in the in the patina in the wood. So it's very very interesting to be able to to see how the how the artist works with the guitar without them being in it because of what they leave behind on it. It's very intriguing to me.
0: And and there's some guitars that are just so i would say ravaged by by guitarists who wear studs i'm during during a heavy metal or a punk era guitarists with with lots of studs on on their hands or on their belts or stuff you look at the back of the guitar and that's i mean because you've also got the backs of the guitars which also tell an interesting story about the personality of, of the musician
1: yeah, and fans don't get to see the backside of the guitar. So I always, if there's something interesting on the back of a guitar, I always take a photograph of it. And in this book, Immortal Axes, you've got to check out Dimebag Daryl's Dean from Hell guitar because he was a huge... KISS fan and I was able to photograph the guitar on top of his KISS pinball machine and he also used to wear a belt and the belt buckle was a picture of the four of them you know the KISS uh, uh, in their makeup on the back of this on the front of his belt buckle and that was what is made all the wear and tear on the back of that guitar and it's ratched to shit so you know you can he played it hard and he had KISS vibe all the way.
0: As I mentioned in the introduction, the artists, the guitarists represented constitute an incredibly eclectic list. How does this lineup reflect your personal listening taste?
1: Well, uh, I love it all because I grew up with my father playing Les Paul and Mary Ford, Chet Atkins, Johnny Cash, uh, Glenn Campbell. So I'm so pleased to have Johnny Cash's guitar in this book and Glenn Campbell's very first guitar that he got from Sears and Roebuck with a hand painted horse on it. And uh, to have Chet Atkins' Black Beauty in this guitar and Les Paul's guitar, his Black Beauty that he was his tinkering guitar. And it's photographed with all of his truss rod covers and different tremellos and strings all over the place which is personifies Les. And then it moves into jazz greats. You know, we've got George Benson in there and he's one of the greatest guitarists of all time you know you'll even hear rock and roll artists say what a wonderful player george benson is and it this the music weaves together with the old school guys like the blues guys bb king and uh john lee hooker and john mayall uh all the rock and roll guys love those guys and so then we have the classic rock comes in because they're influenced by the, the blues and and the country and uh so we have our classic rock, like Jimmy Page, uh, his his double neck that he used in Stairway to Heaven, and Eric Clapton, and um, even Rick Vito, who was with the Fleetwood Mac for ten years. Uh, these guys all celebrate the ones that came before them, and then there's the women in music that are so important: Joan Jett, uh, Susie Quattro, who wrote the afterward for the book. To have Susie's voice in the book was so important to me because she really paved the way for women in rock along with jo- Joan Jett right behind her. And then including also not only those women as veterans, but moving into generations, uh, you know, like Susanna Hoffs and, and Vicki Peterson from the Bangles um, and into the newer, newer ones, St. Vincent and Nita Strauss. Uh, of course, Jennifer Batten, who was Jeff, worked with Jeff Beck and with uh, Michael Jackson and has an amazing solo career. so. It's I listen to all of their music that I just ran through, and um, as these bands would come through where I live, Las Vegas or Los Angeles or wherever I was planning to travel in the world, I would say, who who's living in what area? You know, where who can I make a request for? Who what band is coming through town, and let me photograph their guitar. And generally, it's always somebody that I have a history of listening to.
0: And as you were working on the photographs and text for each musician, did you make a point of listening to their music while you were doing that?
1: Uh- Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Of course, because there's so much music, right? And so maybe I hadn't listened to certain artist music for a really long time. So gearing up for the shoot, I would listen, uh, driving, traveling to the photo session, I listen. I listen to it when I leave. I listen to it when I'm editing their images. So I'm actually looking at the guitar that they're playing as I'm listening to the music. It's fantastic.
0: That, that's almost an out-of-body experience. I mean, that's that's got to be almost thynesthetic <laughs> to, to do that. Well,
1: the, cool, the coolest thing is when you're going to a show, you're at a concert, right? And I usually will photograph the guitar before the show. And so there it is. I'm photographing the guitar, and then a couple hours later, I'm sitting in the audience, and I'm watching it being played. And it's, it's indescribable, really, you know, to be able to get that close to some of these most iconic guitars and then to watch it be played after I was just with it moments ago. It's very cool.
0: You, you mentioned Johnny Cash, there's even a guitar that has a Johnny Cash sticker on it.
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, that's uh, Ricky Bird's uh, Les Paul, who has that on there. He, that's, the, that's the famous shot that Jim Marshall took of right. Cash flipping the bird. Yeah. yeah. And so Ricky Bird put, Ricky Bird right? Ah. Um, put that on the front of his guitar. And, uh, you know, of course, he's Joan Jett's uh, guitar player from the Blackhearts, Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. He was a Blackheart. And of course, they just got recognized at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame finally, um, two years ago. So he's a rock and roll Hall of Famer now. And um, it was really, really cool to include his guitar next to Jones in the book. So we have Joan Jett and the Blackhearts represented.
0: Well, do you ever have an interest in in live concert photography or is that too unpredictable and a different a different animal? Shot
1: quite a few. Yeah. I've shot quite a few live concerts. If I'm there and I'm shooting the guitar, I would say, can I photo, you know, can I shoot the show? And then they let you shoot the first three songs. Yeah. So I have done that. Yeah. It's not really my forte, to be honest with you. It's difficult. Like, I really have a lot of respect for concert photographers. It It's not easy because the lights are changing. you got to shoot fast. You want to get sharp. It's hard to get sharp images. And so I actually, um, I have a lot on my hands already just with editing and managing the content of the guitar imagery. So I don't shoot that many shows. I haven't been requesting to shoot shows for, for very long for you know for a while
0: there's a band I like to photograph called Joe Russo's almost Dead which is a Grateful Dead adjacent band and I just love the interplay musicians creating music in the moment and and the eye contact and and the you know more than the hands just the the interpersonal nonverbal communication that really fascinates me about improvisational musicians so I, I try and get I agree with you passes for that
1: that's interesting that you would bring that up because the last band that I shot, the last live show I shot was about a year and a half ago and that was the Dark Star Orchestra. Oh,
0: sure, sure.
1: Which is another Grateful Dead cover yeah, band. Yeah, And they actually were playing that night the Phil Lesh Mission Control bass that's featured in this book, which is why I was there and photographing it being played. So um, that's kind of funny. We have a lot yeah. of parallels, don't yeah.
0: we? Speaking of Mission Control, or as it's officially known, the Osiris base? Yes. I'm a decade older than you, and the instruments that mean the most to me are in, in the book are, are Phil's bass, uh, the Gibson J-160 that John Lennon played at the Bedins for Peace, uh, the Hofner violin bass that Paul McCartney played from 63 to 70 and then from the late 80s on. The 63 Fender Telecaster that Michael Bloomfield played on Highway 61 Revisited and at Newport. Dwayne Allman's 57, Gibson Les Paul Goldtop. These are the ones that emotionally I look at and go, oh, my gosh, th- this instrument has meant important things to me. I have been at concerts where this instrument has been played and it has meant something to me, or I have, or I know about this event and it has meant something to me. Which are the ones in this book that emotionally mean most to you?
1: Well, the John Lennon J160E is very meaningful to me because my earliest memories really of hanging out with my parents in California. We used to drive down the highway, we'd go to the beach and my dad had a gold Mustang, like a 64 Mustang. And it wasn't a convertible, it was a hard top. And I remember listening to the Beatles on the radio. He had it on and Hey Jude would come on and we'd all sing it in the car. And my mom, uh, I was about four years old at that time, saved up all her money that she could. She scraped up $400, And she bought that J160E guitar for my dad and surprised him with it. And he played that guitar. He he still plays it, except now it resides at my house because (laughs) my dad came to visit me in Memphis, Tennessee, and he told me growing up, I was not allowed to date musicians. And so I had to confess I was dating the guitar player from church. However, he also owned a vintage guitar store. And my dad said, that's okay. He's not a touring musician, and he has a Gibson, He has a guitar store, and I, I'm looking for a Gibson mandolin. If he gets me in one, let me know. So he did. He got in a couple of weeks later, this 1917 Gibson mandolin mint condition, and I said, how much for the mandolin? I want to get that for my dad as a present. And he said, you can't afford it, but if you photograph some guitars for me, I have to sell that I don't want to sell. I'll trade you for the mandolin. I said, done deal. So that's what I did. And that was the first guitar photographs I, I photographed with these vintage guitars. And so my dad came to visit me in Memphis and he brought his J160E guitar and he met my boyfriend. He go, wants to go to the guitar store, obviously. So my dad takes his J160E that he's had since I was four years old, okay? So at this point I'm, I'm in my mid thirties. And um, he he's me and he says, now I have to confess because he went by himself, I wasn't there. And he said, I just traded in the J160E for the for the um, Martin D35 I've always wanted. I'm like, dad, I'm really happy for you that you got the guitar you always wanted, but that J160E, you can't trade that. That's a family <laughs> guitar. Like you can't, that's John Lennon, you know? So I hung up the phone and then I called Hank and I said, how much for the, for the Gibson? Because I need to buy that back. And he said, I'll give it to you for $1,200. So I bought the guitar back. So now I have, it's still my dad's guitar, but I have it in my house. And um, you know, it's an heirloom. It's now worth about $4,000. And um, I actually have a photograph of John Lennon of all the Beatles. It's a, it's a famous shot um, uh, of John Lennon holding that J160E. And so I have the photo of John holding it and I've got it sitting in my my den, so. That's the guitar is the most special one to me because of that story of my dad in the book, to answer your question. (laughs)
0: Uh, We're we're talking with Lisa S. Johnson. Her book is Immortal Axes, Guitars That Rock. How important was your family situation and and the musicianship and the understanding of the importance of instruments in your development into who you've become?
1: mhm well i will remember driving with my dad in the car and we'd be always listening to music and my dad would say listen and he'd say what did you hear and you he was training us to listen when you hear a rhythm guitar come in when you hear the bass guitar come in when you hear the guitar solo or the drummer or when they're merging together when the horns come in the timing of all that and i've i've always listen to music that way now and appreciate it that way. And so my, my dad taught me that. I was always mad at him for not teaching me how to play the guitar, <laughs> but he taught me how to listen to one, that's for sure, and how to listen to music. So... I appreciate it. Just like you when you're watching the concert. I'm my dad taught me to watch the stage, you know, the lights coming in. What are the what are the lights highlighting? The sound equipment. It's fascinating, isn't it? When you go to a concert and you're watching the crew set up and they're getting ready for the show. And then when the show starts, how all the crew are working nonstop throughout the the, the, the show as well and and how the, the all of the artists are communicating and connecting with each other. It's very strategic and very interesting.
0: It's clear from your discussions of the instruments that you understand the elements of a guitar. Do you play?
1: I'm learning. I've been long learning for a long time. And you know, you have to sit and practice every single day and my my practice has been getting my book together, the content and so many hours dedicated to it that um, I have not become very proficient on the guitar yet, but I do. I am collecting guitars and uh, I tinker around on them and I, I, I will get proficient eventually. Guitars,
0: I can tootle around a bit on a tenor sax. That's my that's my axe. Guitars... I,
1: play gong. I do play the gong quite well.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I hear. So I hear. Of course, playing guitar has an impact on one's hands. And you have several photos in here of hands. Talk a bit about some of the hands photographs.
1: Okay. Well, uh, Robert Belfour. And T-Model Ford. these are two Delta Blues greats and not as recognized as they should be. Their names aren't as well known and that's why they need to be in the book because people need to know about the history of these amazing players from the Deep South. And when you, I was lucky enough to meet both of these men and hang out with them and drink some Jack Daniels with a, you know, a Budweiser chaser. And uh, Robert Belfer, he, you know, he wore a necklace around that was a, that was a petrified um sand dollar uh for his mojo and his hands he had these really cool rings on and so we're sitting there drinking our jack daniels and our our budweiser and i said let me look at your hands and he held his hands out and they're just these beautiful well-worn hands and uh i got that photo you know and it's of his hands with the beer bottle in the background and the jack and his his star uh sand dollar necklace hanging down and it really personifies who he is and one of the other hands that i love in this book i was went invited by uh, i actually got the opportunity to photograph um Uh, Peter Frampton's guitar the one that got lost his Phoenix Uh, and I was in Nashville and I'm friends with Karen and Albert Lee Albert Lee one of the most amazing players and and pickers of all time and so they said hey we're going to be in Nashville for the James Burton charity James Burton would do does a charity event every year except now COVID he he hasn't so I said well I would love to come because I'm going to be in Nashville. They said, well, come on with us. So I went with Albert and Karen Lee to James Burton. Everybody was there. I mean, I I met James and subsequently after that, photographed several of his guitars that are also featured in the book. Um, However, Brian May, was also there from Queen, and I was on stage, and everyone was rehearsing, and I walked over to Brian and said, "Hey, I, I just wanted to introduce myself. I photographed your red special for my first book, 108 Rock Star Guitars," and he and I said, "It's going to appear in my next book too." And he's like, "Hey, that's fantastic!" And he remembered, you know, I didn't meet him when I photographed his guitar, but he did remember my book, and that he was in it. And uh, so I was in Karen Lee's and Albert Lee's dressing room with James Burton. We're hanging out.
0: And for people who forgot their discography, James Burton was Elvis's guitar player.
1: That's right. And not only Elvis, but he was uh, um, he was uh, um, Merle Haggard. He he was on with he wrote and recorded Mama Tried with Merle Haggard. I photographed his national dobro guitar that's in the book that he wrote. Rec- he wrote, recorded that song with uh, Merle Haggard on. He played with Emmylou Harris. He played with Nancy Sinatra. I mean, James Burton played with many, many greats. So I'm sitting there, I'm in Albert Lee's dressing room and- uh,
0: uh, Steve Cropper.
1: Steve Cropper sitting in there and Brian May walks in and he starts having a conversation with Steve. And the next thing they, I know, they're standing up and, and Brian's saying to Steve, Hey, let me have a look at your hands. So so Brian is looking at Steve Cropper's hands and, and he's checking out the hands and I'm lo- watching them. I'm like, Hey, let me photograph your hands, guys. And Brian's like, That's a great idea. So just then, uh, Albert Lee comes in with James Burton. And I go, Hey guys, get your hands in here. So they both put their hands in and I got this aerial shot of, of these four amazing players' hands together. You know, um, so I love that shot. And it's actually closes out the book of, of and it's the excellent, most excellent closing ever, because you get to see these great, great hands of these amazing players. And it's just the essence of them. Yeah. Beautiful.
0: From a purely monetary perspective, which of these guitars is the most valuable?
1: Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, that. Osiris bass is pretty, pretty expensive. I mean, if you were to build that today, it would probably cost around $300,000, I think, something like that, because of all the wood. That was one of the first guitars, basses made with all those layers of wood. Alembic, you know, started that. And um, it's such a specialized guitar. That the electronics and every aspect of it and the inlays in it are so incredibly detailed and meaningful um, that it would be and you know the way with the with the quadraphonic pickup system, so that it could you you know you hit one string and it comes out of one bank of of, uh, amplifiers and then you hit another string and it comes out of another bank, I mean it's just a such an innovative base. And uh, it would be very, very expensive to build today.
0: And it's got uh, hashish inlays.
1: It does, right? The eyes, <laughs> the blacks of the eyes. God bless
0: <laughs> Phil. I, mean, I, I o- mean,
1: only the Grateful Dead. Yeah, well, uh, is- so, I mean, but I mean, how how would you value Les Paul's Black Beauty? I mean, the guitar that he tinkered on for years. Mm-hmm. Um, Chet Atkins' Black Beauty is in there too. I I don't know what they're valued at, but they're mm-hmm millions, Mm. you know.
0: This the strat that the strat that Hendrix played at Woodstock.
1: Right. And I think Paul Allen paid two million dollars for that or more. Um of course the Dwayne Almond Gold Top, that one sold right after I photographed it for I think one point two million. But the most expensive guitar in the whole book right now would be David Gilmour's Black Strat, because that one sold Mm. um at Christie's auction uh, and is the most expensive electric guitar right now in the world. And um, what did that go for? That was like 5 million after, after the fees and everything like that, the Christie's fees, I think it was close to $5 million. So, so,
0: so some of these guitars are still the musicians performing guitar. Some are held by private collectors, some are in a museum or in a case on a wall at the Hard Rock Cafe. Do you get a different vibe depending on where a guitar falls on that spectrum?
1: Well, of course, when you're with the artist in their home, it's got that home vibration. They've, you know, you're in their home. It's it's nestled in their personal um, environment. And so there is that frequency. There's also, when I remember opening up Jimmy Page's double neck guitar, Jimmy was not there. And he didn't need to be. When you opened up that double neck case, just the it was like, woo, you know, coming off this guitar and you can smell the case. Isn't that just the most wonderful smell when you open up the case of a guitar and you smell the wood and the, just the years of, of use and travel and, um, the, the, you can still see, even though it was a well-maintained guitar, you could still see, and you can see these pictures in the book of the back of the necks and the headstocks. And you just see years of sweat and like kind of like dirt and grime embedded in there that you just can't clean off. You know, it's, you, you get to experience this um, this vibration, that comes off the guitars and you, you know that the songs that were played on them in your heart, you know, so you're just like, there is a vibrational frequency, even if the, if the artist is not in the room, that those guitars are giving off their own energy frequency and vibration.
0: Does the guitar to your sense, does the guitar though lose some of that frequency and intensity if it's in a case on a wall at the hard rock or, or held by a private collector?
1: Um, I think that when it's in a case, like, for example, I got to photograph uh, Malcolm Young's uh, 56 uh, White Falcon Gretsch that was hanging in a case in the Hard Rock uh, uh, International, uh, Hard Rock Cafe, actually, in New York. You know, I guess when you have... That energy of people staring at it and putting their energy into it hundreds and thousands of people going and looking at it. Um, you know, there can be that feeling of like when somebody's eyes lay on it it steals a bit of that energy takes some of it, uh, I just think that we know that the music, you know, the back in black tour was brian johnson and that's AC/DC. that's when i came into learning and, and discovering AC/DC was with the back in black album so when i was with that guitar man i was just like you know playing back in black while i'm photographing the guitar and so I got all the energy I wanted off of it. And of course, it's a very well-worn guitar. So there was a lot of vibration coming off of it. And so I, I think that when another person owns the guitar, so for example, to continue that photographing Tom Petty's guitar that's owned by a private collector, the, the, um, the black and white flying V that he used that was inspired the Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers logo, that's owned by a private collector. And, you know, these collectors, they cherish these guitars they want them to be seen they want to share them with the world and so that's why they give me access and they're so happy to see it in a book where they they can share it with the most number of people um bill butler who has uh, several of the jimi hendrix guitars the love drops flying v which ended up in the met um, museum exhibit uh play it loud that also went to the hard rock uh, in Cleveland where um, I actually had photographed it before that, the Love Drops Flying V and the white Woodstock Strat. Uh, and um, I also photographed another uh, his, um, uh, Sunburst Strat that was one of the last guitars he played and also his Zomitis Acoustic Hear My Train A coming, 12 mm-hmm. string. Um, you know what? Jimmy was in those guitars all the way, man. Like there was Jimmy was totally there when I was shooting those guitars. So you get the energy, frequency, and vibration, even if it's owned by someone else. And they are so happy that you're honoring that guitar that they have. They're they're custodians, they're caretakers of these amazing instruments, just like art. They're collecting art and they're sharing it.
0: I assume that the pursuit of the guitar and the access is the hardest part of the project. So, so how important is it? How important are people like Jason Scheuner, who, who was your access to the Garcia pretzel guitar and Phil's Alembic bass? How important are people like that in your ability to get the access you need?
1: Incredibly important. I mean, Jim Ursay, who owns the Indianapolis Colts, owns the David Gilmour Strat. Uh, and he owns the George Harrison Gibson SG that I photographed uh that he used on the revolver album um jason so graciously allowed me to photograph and we spent so much time together getting all the details together on that guitar Um, They're very very important. Um, The gentleman that owns Mike Bloomfield's Telecaster. I mean I hunted that guitar down because there was an article in Vintage Guitar Magazine where Luthier was fixing repairing that guitar and I found that guy and he introduced me to the owner of it and he was very happy to hear from me so that I could photograph it for the book. They're very very important because um, these guitars otherwise may not be seen ever again or played, you know, Phil Schaunauer, he's like allowing Dark Star Orchestra to play it. He's allowing that guitar to be played by fine musicians who love the dead, who love Phil, you know, who they all are just honoring and thrilled with this bass to be able to play it. And then of course, you know, um, other other guys like um, Jim, Mr. Jim Irsay, uh, he likes to play the guitar. So these guitars are getting played, they're getting used. And um, that's important. So they're not just hanging on a wall.
0: Jim Ursay also owns the Kerouac Scroll for for On the Road.
1: Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, he's got a huge collection of artifacts. Yeah, yeah very impressive.
0: Not to pick at a, at a sore point, but you, you mentioned Malcolm Young and getting to photograph his '56 Gretsch White Falcon. As you noted, you have been a rabid ACDC fan since you were a teenager. We're not going to tell your father exactly what was going on when you (laughs) you were listening to them, but you have still, you still have not gotten to Angus Young's Gibson SG. How painful is that?
1: Very painful. Um, I was really painful standing in the rock and roll hall of fame. I was there photographing um, the uh, David Gilmore Strat. I was photographing Joan Jett's um, Epiphone, and the, the Play It Loud exhibit was there, and the 1985, I think it is, black Gibson SG that Angus played during the Back in Black tour was there, and I'd already photographed Malcolm's Gretsch. And I went, again, I never hear back. I write to them and I never get a response back. I've sent them books, don't hear anything. Uh, I wrote to them again. I am going to be at the Rock Hall. I will be there photographing David Gilmore Strat. Um, May I please photograph Angus's Gibson SG? No response. It's heartbreaking to stand there and look at that guitar and be so close and not be able to include it in this amazing volume where all his contemporaries are being celebrated so i'm not going to give up Stu. i'm going to keep asking and i'm going to keep trying to ferret out who who knows who can get to angus directly for me are
0: are there are there other instruments you've been hunting uh without success
1: Mark Knopfler is also one of my all-time favorite. I would love to photograph the Red Strat. He performed Sultans of Swing On. Um, there's there's still quite a few out there. I mean, Dwayne Eddy. There's a lot of country uh, folks that I would love to photograph their guitars. Um, but there's still a lot in rock and roll, too. I mean, the original Peter Green, Greeny, that Kirk Hammett has now. I would love to photograph that, even though... Um, I do have the, the very first prototype replica that was made. I did photograph that one. That's in Gary Moore's page with his very first guitar, his Fiesta Red Strat, and then the, the prototype of Greeny. Of so there's that one. And, um, you know, Peter Frampton speaks extensively about Hank Marvin in, the, in, the, in his uh, foreword. And I'd love to photograph Hank, Hank Marvin's guitar. As well. And of course, there's um, uh, Trey Anastasio and there's also um, uh, John Frusciante from Red Hot Chili Peppers and Flea's Base. I have a long list. There's plenty, Stu. Are,
0: are, are there, do people s- say no or do they just not get back to you?
1: Uh, sometimes they say no. Sometimes they don't get back to me. Um, and a lot of times it's to do with timing. Like I really wanted to get Eddie Vedder and... Um, uh, I wanted to get to those guys, um, and I requested, and they were in the middle of rehearsals, and they um, couldn't—they couldn't do it. Mike McCready is who I'm talking about. Uh, They just couldn't—they couldn't uh, break. They weren't doing any photo shoots, so it's a lot of times it just has to do with timing. You just have to be persistent and keep asking. I mean, I asked for Billy Gibbons like four or five times before I finally got a yes.
0: I can understand saying no for reasons of logistics or time, but. To Actually, are the people who just don't want their photo their, their guitars photographed?
1: I think sometimes they might not understand uh, what's happening, what it's for, they don't read, you know, so they just go, No, we're not doing any photo shoots right now. Um, uh, I think sometimes they're just not into it, you know, when it comes to Angus Young, they don't need any press, they don't need to have their guitar in any book. I mean. They're super famous and everyone's rabid as I am, you know, to try to work with them and do something with them. And they don't need that. They don't need it. So, you know, you have to at some point you, you respect it. You say you have to let it go. But for now, I'll let it go for now. <laughs> and when I'm when I'm working on another book, then I might have to ask again.
0: I saw Bob Dylan in Milwaukee last week, and he dedicated the show to Les Paul, Explain how the Wizard of Waukesha was the key to this stage in your career.
1: Well, Les Paul played every Monday night at the Iridium Room in New York City, and I moved from Memphis, Tennessee, where I'd started photographing guitars. I moved to New York City with my job with Yusuf and Kodak Company. I didn't know anybody in New York, and I grew up listening to Les Paul and Mary Ford, and they had the Time Out magazine and what to do. And so I I saw Les Paul was playing at the Iridium Room. I'm like, I'm going to go see Les Paul. And uh, that made me feel at home because I, I was music I was familiar with and I felt like I was with my dad, you know? And uh, I'd started photographing these guitars in Memphis just for fun, just to test films with, you know, with Kodak. And when they transferred me to New York, I thought I may as well make a project of this. I mean, every famous musician comes through New York City. I should see if I can photograph famous guitars. And why not start with Les Paul? So I would go to a show and I'd go by myself and I'd sit at the back bar uh, at the Iridium Room, the old Iridium Room down at Lincoln Circle or wherever it was on Lincoln. And uh, one night, Paul Nowinski, who's also featured in the book, his bass, because he played with the Les Paul Trio, he walks up to the bar to get his drink you know they always get free drinks in the band and I said hey I, I want to introduce myself I'm Lisa and I photograph guitars and I'd love to photograph Les's guitar and here's some pictures that I've taken of other vintage guitars in, in Tennessee what do you think and he goes well let me go back and show Les so we took those photographs back and a few minutes later can, he comes back and he said yeah Les said you can photograph his guitar and I said fantastic the next time I come down I'll bring my camera so I did and uh, I photographed Les's guitar at the during one of the breaks. He, he'd always do two shows, and at the end of the first show, I walked up and I said, "Hey, I'm here. Can I photograph Les's guitar?" And they said, "Yeah, it's right here." And I photographed it right on the stage. And uh, after that, I I always kept going. And one night, Bucky Pizzarelli played, and I shot his guitar. And John Schofield, and um, a bunch of players would would Jose Feliciano, and uh, so then I ended up moving from New York to Las Vegas and I kept shooting, vague. every band comes through Las Vegas. So I'm shooting, shooting, shooting. And then I went, I would always go every once a year, you know, to visit New York City. And I'd always go to visit Les, I'd always go to the Iridium Room. And one night I sat down 12 years into the project, I sat down with him and I brought him a stack of prints. And I said, hey Les, I got, cause I'd i always go visit him. I'd always go in the back room every time I went to the show. And uh, so I'm sitting with him. I go, hey, Les, remember I photographed your guitar 12 years ago? Yours was the first famous guitar I ever photographed. And look, here's Don Felder's Les Paul. And here's Zach Wilde's Les Paul. And here's Slash's Les Paul. And I showed him all the Les Pauls. And I said, I need someone to write the foreword for my book. What do you think? You know, you're their hero. Will you write the foreword for my book? And he said, Well, I see what you're saying. He goes, call my manager tomorrow and we'll set that up. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to call tomorrow because I don't want you to forget. And he said, I won't forget. And he didn't forget. So Les really paved the way for me because I photographed his guitar first. And when I would make requests, I would say, you know, I photographed Les Paul's guitar. And um, I would really like to photograph your artist's guitar. Ben Harper was the second famous one I shot. I called up his record label and said, I see Ben's coming in to town. I think it was the Roseland Ballroom. And uh, I'd love to photograph his guitar. And I've been working with Les Paul. And so they let me in.
0: (laughs) If if you can only drop one name, dropping Les Paul's name is is a pretty good place to start.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Very fortunate to have had Les befriend me. Mm -hmm.
0: I know you don't want to give away too many trade secrets, but can you talk a little about technology, the the cameras, the lenses, film versus digital and Mm -hmm. all those nerdy aspects?
1: Well, first, my first book, 108 Rockstar Guitars, actually really is uh, uh, not only the history of guitars, but it's the history of film going into digital technology. Because I work for Kodak and we developed the very first digital cameras. And uh, so I was shooting film um color negative film transparency film and black and white film and i was testing these films so that first book you really see the the different variances of different film types and then i switched to digital cameras because i needed to know my digital product and i actually shot Slash's guitars with a digital camera and you know i got screwed because they weren't built for low light low light and so i got there was a lot of noise and so i had to deal and learn with that and um then digital cameras got better and better so i would i would transition where i'd shoot digital and film so i made sure that i got it And then when digital got so much better, I just switched right straight to digital because the workflow is so much easier. You don't have to scan, you get to see your image right away. So you know that you got it. I mean, when I was shooting film, you're like hearts beating the whole time till you get the film back. And you're like, did I get it? you know, did I have a sharp image? Do it, you know, what does it look like? And you have that 24 hours or 48 hours before, you know, if you got it. So, um, I like to shoot Nikon. I've been shooting Nikon uh, this whole time, film cameras. Uh, then the Kodak digital camera, the I think it was called the 50, 50 N or something. Um, and then, uh, then I went to the Nikon digital cameras. And every time they, they improve them, I get a new one. There was a short period of time I switched to Canon because I had a Canon friend and he just wouldn't leave me alone till I got a Canon. <laughs> so I finally switched to Canon and I friggin hated that camera. And it's just, it just was different animal, the, just the different way that it was high quality. There was no problem with the quality. It was just the, the controls, you know? And so then when Nikon upped their ante on their digital camera I got that one and it was like oh yes you know my hands fit the buttons and all the you know gadgets worked again properly so I'm a Nikon girl and I like to use a 70 to 35 to 70 2.8 f-stop lens that has a macro option on it so I only get an hour usually to do the shoot so I have to I, that lens is so versatile because I can pull back, get the whole guitar. I can, I can, you know, zoom in and I can get the half of the body of the guitar. I can then pull the macro setting out and I can get those, hone in on those little details, wear and tear details and get some artful uh, images where the, the background will fall off and you're just having the most important details sharp. Um, so I love that lens and I just have a simple rig. I just have that one lens, one camera body. I bring a bunch of batteries. And nowadays I've got my, my lights are all battery powered. So I don't have to worry about plug-ins and power cords and stuff like that. So I'm a one woman show. I get it all in one case and my camera's on my back, backpack and I'm ready to rock.
0: I think there's some similarity between photographers and guitarists in that they both need the artistic inspiration, but they also they need technical skill. And the guitarist, the element of understanding the electronics and what, your rig, what one rig will do versus what another rig will do, I, I think there, there's some commonality of the, the skill sets you each need.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, of course, a guitar is really technical, isn't it? I mean, you different pedals that you use, different strings that you use, even the pick, I mean, the amps, everything, you know, and it does equate the same way to photography. There's a lot of elements. And you, I had to kind of pick and choose what look I wanted to have, because within an hour's time frame, you don't have the time to have all different kinds of looks and lenses and things like that. So that's why I like the setup that I have because it's pretty versatile and uh, I'm able to capture something creative. And at the same time, it's, it's, um, it feels like a, a piece of art. It looks like artwork. It's not a mug shot. It has feeling to it. And I'm able to capture that with the setup that I have. So.
0: As you may have suspected, my favorite guitarist is Jerry Garcia. Yeah. And and he was generally a serial monogamist when it came to guitars. He played one guitar, he played the wolf, he played the tiger, and so on. Most players, though, seem to have lots and lots of guitars. The, the picture of Wadi Wachtel has got, you know, half a dozen on the wall. How are the choices made which guitars to photograph?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you all, I always ask for their number one guitar. So they're usually already ready with their number one. And then uh, that that would be what they're playing, what they're touring with um, and what they're, what means the most to them. Like when I photographed Albert Lee's guitars, I thought he was gonna bring his, out his Red Music Man guitar because that's what he, you always see him playing on the road. But he shows up and he brings the Black Beauty Gibson that Eric Clapton gifted him. He brings his Telecaster, that everybody in the world that means meaningful to him has signed that guitar. There's hundreds of signatures on that guitar, but only two on the front, or three on the front, Dwayne Eddy, Ramblin' Jack Elliott, and Les Paul, who wrote, Now You Got a Les Paul, and he signed his name, Les Paul, and on a telly. <laughs> <laughs> so with Merle Haggard, you know, he, he wanted his tough dog, Telly i mean he's known for playing his telecaster so that was the number one so i got his tough dog telly um obviously that black strat was david gilmore's number one so you ask them for that and then if sometimes they don't have like sometimes it's kind of heartbreaking when you're on tour and they don't tour with their vintage guitars anymore and so you end up getting something that they tour with but it may not be the most meaningful guitar and so that happened with um with uh, Paul Dean from Loverboy in Canada. And he had his road guitars with him. And I said, you know, I'm from Canada and I go up and visit Canada all the time. You must have some of your old school Loverboy guitars at home. And he goes, oh yeah. He goes, anytime, come to Vancouver, come over to the house and we'll get them out. So I got all of his old school Loverboy guitars. And you know, I ended up not even publishing the the other guitars that I that I'd photographed previously because these ones were so much more important. Um, Robin Trower I photographed a couple of his strats and uh, we ended up not putting them in the book because they weren't his old school guitars there were no wear and tear on them at all they were like fresh off the press Stratocasters with nothing on them so I I have them I did take some creative shots with his guitar pick and the strings but we ended up not using it um, this time so we'll Mm -hmm. see. Yeah. I'll
0: tell you a little secret. I wouldn't know an old Loverboy guitar from a new one.
1: <laughs> there, well, there's a big difference. He's got some pretty cool guitars. Check them out.
0: Okay. I'll, 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 as I say, I'm a decade older than you. <laughs> there's a lot going on with the cover, which people can't see, obviously, because we're on radio, but it's worth having you describe because there are both spiritual and musical elements to it.
1: Yes. So I'm a yogi and I um, wanted to figure out how to infuse some kind of yoga technology or philosophy in my book so you could get that cosmic experience because music is a cosmic experience. It can take us to nirvana. It takes us out of body. It takes us back in time. It takes us the memories that we make in the now moment and so I'd, I don't like to put a guitar image on the cover of my books because when they're on the coffee table I'd like them to stay on the coffee table and not get bored oh I'm sick and tired of looking at the same image that I'm passing by all the time right so my books are kind of kaleidoscopic where I take elements of the guitar and have them design in a design where you you can look and stare at the cover for a long time and keep seeing little details so this book cover has a skull on the cover. And if you look in the third eye, there's a circle and it has the sacred geometry of the Vesica Pisces in it, which is the symbol of creation. It's the first piece of sacred geometry where two circles join together and they create a third circle in the center. And this is the creation. And then if you look in the eyes, The diamond inlay that you see on a Gibson guitar headstock, we took that and we made a whole bunch of them in a circle. So if you look into the eyes, you're seeing the Gibson guitar diamond inlay. His nose is an upside down flying V. And then all around his head, we have these designs of um, the Gibson SG body and a Telecaster body. And it's just so cool to look at and to see the infusion of the elements of a guitar infused in the, in the cover as art and it it makes it fun. And did and you
0: design it, it or, or give someone the, yeah. the the sense of what you wanted?
1: I have an amazing designer that I've worked with, with for a number of years on both of my books. Uh, his name is Nick Steinhardt and he's in LA and he has a company called 23N, uh, 23IN. And he's also the lead guitar player for a band called Touche Amore. And, uh, they have huge fan base. And he, so he's the best person I could have found to be the designer of my book because he loves guitars and he knows guitars. And uh, so he did, does all the layout of my book. And we have such a great relationship. We sit and chat. We talk about what, I'm, what I have in my head. And he has the ability to put that into the computer and design it. And it comes back and like he always blows my mind, you know, because we, we talk about it and then he puts it together and it's amazing.
0: Well, it's it's a beautiful book. It's really well laid out, and I love the font. the 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 font that you use for the names of the musicians is a very it's a really cool, cool. cool That's cool all, font. Nick. Yeah, yeah, Nick
1: figured that out. Uh, you,
0: you mentioned your yogi. How has, on a practical level, being a yogi, enabled you to do some of this work as a photographer? Has in terms of physical control and and breath control, has that mm-hmm. had an impact?
1: absolutely especially because I said before I only get about an hour of time which isn't very much time at all and I'm also always usually by myself so I'm hauling gear it's heavy I haul a gear in so you got to be in shape you know because I call this stuff through the airport and, you know into rental cars and then you get to on location and I got to get set up and I need to set up and get be ready to press the exposure at in 10 minutes 15 minutes you know so i lay out my background and get it all set up so it's you know your adrenaline is running and then you're shooting and so as a yogi i am able to to extend my body. You also have to like, you know, move in ways where you're not getting a reflection of the light. You're not getting your reflection in the guitar. So you've got to be able to pull back and still lean forward. And so I'm using my whole body and my abdominal muscles and my breath a lot. And at the end I'm sweating, you know, I'm, it's a workout. For me and i use my breath and at the same time i have to be talking to people garnering information writing it down so yeah i, I definitely use the tools of yoga um throughout the whole process
0: well it's uh it paid off because it is a, a wonderful book as i say it is a, a gorgeous coffee table book for the musician in your life or if, in your life if you are a musician or want to become one immortal Axes. Guitars That Rock from our good friends at Princeton Architectural Press. That's papress.com. Lisa S. Johnson, thank you so much. This was uh, uh, it's, it's a beautiful book, and I appreciate the time you took to talk about with us here today. Thank
1: you so much, Stu. It's my honor, and thank you for all the great questions. What a great conversationalist you are. Anytime. Well, I'm well, happy thank to talk to you. Thank
0: you. Next week on Mass and Bookbeat, K.G. Miles and Jackie Lee with their book, Bob Dylan in London, Troubadour Tales. Until then, on behalf of News and Public Affairs Director Sholly Pittman, Engineer Chuck Cademan, and all of us here at Madison Bookbeat, I'm Stu Levitan. Thank you for joining us. Now, as Ben Sidron plays us out with a little bit of Little Sherry, please stay tuned for Alex Wilding-White and All Around Jazz. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison. Listener-sponsored, Community Radio.